welcome, welcome, welcome to Bricks and Flicks. Your host, Johnny and Colin, two of the partners at Omnium, are standing by to bust some myths. You might not like this episode, but you'll be glad to listen to it because they're talking about repackaging, packaging changes, and the myths of overpromotion. Here are your hosts, Johnny and Colin. Hey, hey Lucas. Lucas. Excited to bust some myths. Me too. I'm nervous. I'm 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 nervous. We're going to get some negative reviews. So if uh, if you are listening, give it give us a positive review to help balance it out. We're might not make too many friends with this one. I guess it depends who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> we want to give a shout out to John Corey for this idea. One of the longtime CPG veterans and head of sales who we worked with closely over the last seven years. So he thought it'd be a good idea to bust some myths. So why don't we get started? Yeah. What's the first one, Colin? First one. So. This is one we hear a lot. The myth goes something that something like we're going to do a packaging change and that packaging change, we're going to do it with the mindset to increase sales. And we're going to plan on velocities going up because our packaging is going to be newer and better and more visible on shelf and all the, all those things. And so usually what happens then, uh, the reason that we butt up against this is that we, something gets put in a plan, right? Like a, say a five to 15% increase in velocities because of it. And now we have a plan that has a, a number we got to go chase. So the question is, I guess the myth or the claim is that packaging changes increase our everyday velocities on shelf. Yeah, packaging changes are a big deal. And we've seen a lot of them over the years now where whenever I'm working with a brand and they're going to do a significant rebrand, it's a really big rebrand. They're going to go from black to green or white to pink or whatever it is, big changes. We always caution a significant decline in the plan instead of an what? increase. Yeah, a decline. That's what I would advise. That's what we recommend our customers to do because every single one that I've seen has resulted in a negative decline in baseline everyday sales. So are you saying that people stop buying our product because they don't like the packaging? That's not what I'm saying. The hypothesis I have is that people stop buying the product because they can't find your product anymore. So they're used to going in and buying the red CPG product. And now it's green and they go to the shelf and there's so much going on at the shelf and they can't find the red one. So they just don't buy it anymore. Or they buy something else. I have another theory. They assume changes like smaller amounts or just a different formula and they want, they'll, they'll just go try whatever is on sale. So it opens them up to trying something new because they assume, there's a, that consumer assumption that something is different. So it's a different yeah. product now. Yeah. I mean, it's a great one too. I think it's important to always remember that there's not just one consumer or one type of consumer. There's a wide range of consumers. So you're probably hitting all of that. You're probably hitting people who can't find it, people who don't like it, people who are worried it's different. And the list goes on, right? They're all going to be having an impact. Versus this one mythical customer. Oh, thank God they changed the packaging. It was really holding me back before that, that red CPG product. Well, you do get some of those. I mean, I think I think there's both, right? You lose some customers, you gain some customers, but and, and so they're kind of all the answers are right. But what Johnny was saying was is in the end, if we look and say, okay, what happened after all of those different buying behaviors, what we see is generally a decrease. Because I believe what happens is across brands, you're gonna have a heavy users, light users, medium users, and the heavy users usually drive a lot of the sales, like a lot of the sales, right? The eighty twenty type of rule. And if you just lose a couple of those heavy users because they can't find their favorite SKU anymore, or they think it's not in the store anymore, and they buy something else, that's going to have a big hole in your overall bucket of sales and cause a negative decline there overall. And these are substantial numbers. What's your number, Colin? If you're advising a brand right now, they're going through a huge rebrand, like it's going to be completely different, new colors, new pictures. What number are you going to advise them to put in the plan? 
I would say a minus 15%. Put it in the plan at minus 15. Yeah, 10 to 20 is the number and 15 is exactly where I'd land. Zero, like no change is the best case scenario. And I only I would only advise that on like a, a pretty incremental change. So you're just kind of refreshing some things. The packaging generally looks the same, but it's just sharper and a little updated. That would be like a flat, no real change. Now, that assumes you get the packaging out with no logistical issues. So you got to get the packaging in and s- switch it over. And if, I mean, if there's, if you happen to, do a UPC change. There's don't do a UPC there. change. Don't do a UPC change. <laughs> don't change UPCs, please. Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> so there's just there's other risks that come up on the logistical side of actually just like physically getting new packaging to the shelf, and and you need the people stocking the shelves to know where to put it. And so when you change packaging on that person that's been stocking the shelf, they know the red one goes here. All of a sudden, they see a green one. It might not end up where you think it's supposed to end up. So Colin, are you saying that all packaging in the grocery store should just be what it was a hundred years ago when it first came out, just never, ever change it? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> well, the actual example of this is like a client we work with. So I feel like I can say this, but Amy's packaging is when, when I look at it, I always feel like it's dated, but I know exactly what it is when I look at it and I know that I like it. And so before, before I started using the product, I always knew what the brand was and I knew what that was and it hasn't changed. And so I personally don't like, I I think the packaging looks old. And if I was a marketer, I'd probably say that needs to be refreshed. You mean if you were a new VP of marketing coming in, trying in to make a, make, if you were a new VP of marketing coming in, trying to make a name for yourself, you think the first thing that you'd say is we got to update the packaging. Okay. So what we're saying is packaging tends not to drive top line sales. Exactly. There's a lot of good reasons to change your packaging that aren't aren't top line sales driven. And there's like, yeah, sometimes you just need to, sometimes you need to change uh, the names of your products, like rebranding from. Well, Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben, perfect, perfect examples in recent, in recent memory. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of reasons to do it. Like if you just want to speak to your consumer differently, right? If, if you want mm-hmm. to change the feel of your brand, then you're probably going to need to change your packaging at some point. Packaging isn't what you're not doing it because of packaging. You're changing it because of how you want to talk to the consumer and packaging is part of that. Mm. Treat it like an evolution, not a revolution. That's how I like to think about it, where have gradual minor changes, right? Where maybe you keep the color the same, but you change uh, your logo or it's a moderate change on that, or you adjust the wording or add new call outs, but minor, minor changes, not these big polarizing changes where it could be viewed as a completely different product. Um, so I've yeah. seen those be very successful, right? I mean, Cliff Bar is a great example where Cliff Bar's brand or packaging has changed over the years. Like if you go look at what it looks like now, what it looked like 10 years ago, it's different, but it's still got the rock climber, right? It's still got the same things that are tied to the Cliff brand. And to me, that's been very successful and we haven't seen any changes there or any, any impacts there. So I want to tell a quick story and then we'll, we'll transition to uh, over promotion, but the, um, I don't even know how to say the name of the brand, the angostra bitters you know the 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 jar with the obnoxiously big label on it do you know why their packaging is so so weird like that i have an idea okay do you you know or do you have a a, a guess i'm just guessing because i've seen other packaging like this where there's kind of something over something else but is it Mm -hmm. is it because underneath it's the original language and so they have to package over it oh okay great all right great guess johnny would you like to guess they have so much they want to tell on the label and they don't want to go to a bigger jar size. Also a great guess, but it started in 1824 when they entered a, like a branding competition at a local fair and they just misprinted the label. So they put the, the giant labels on and the judge came up to the, the two brothers who were taking over their, their family business and said, look, 
you lost the the ten dollar second place beauty pageant contest but keep your label like this everyone will remember it this is the one with the bitters i could i don't even know the name of the brand but i know the bitters that come in the the jar with a giant oversized label it's like sriracha with the green cap they have a trademark on that or qp mayo with the the red cap so if it goes on tv you know the product without even seeing the name of it Yeah. So that's like, yeah, that's, that's so great. It's just about the the uniqueness and recognizability more than the, I don't know, than even what it looks like. It's just that, you yeah. know, that it is this thing, not how pretty is it? Exactly. Cause think of how quickly you make decisions to the shelf, right? I mean, I think we tend to try to, we give consumers too much credit and that they're going there and analyzing every item they pull off the shelf. And maybe some <laughs> people do that. I'm sure there are some consumers that do that, but I, I ask you all to go to a grocery store, just sit in one aisle or stand in one aisle and look at people, right? And it's quick, right? You're coming in, you're grabbing something, you're grabbing something. Oh, there's, there's the Cheerios I like, and there's the beer I like. And there's, and so it's, there's just not that much time at the shelf when you make a decision. So that's great that they have that. Yeah. I wouldn't change it. Yeah, especially now after 175 years, it'd be an outcry to save a fraction of a penny per label. Johnny, I think we got to work on your shopping list if it's Cheerios and beer. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm struggling to see the issues here. You, you grind up those dry Cheerios, make yourself a little Cheerio tortilla, have a burrito and a beer. What's the, what's the issue? Well, it's because I'm shopping with Thomas and he grabs the Cheerios and then I get the beer. It's perfect. Uh, <laughs> Everyone's happy. <laughs> that sounds perfect to me. <laughs> So great, uh, great transition into over promotion because I've been seeing a lot of Cheerios ads that yeah, can uh, got that right. especially with the Olympics right now. I feel like they they latch onto that pretty hard. Let's talk about some of the myths of of over promotion. These are your bullet points. So I really have no no intro. I'll turn it over to you guys. All right. So the second myth we'll try and bust is around promotions. And the question we get a lot from the brands we're working with is: if I promote too much, then I'm going to uh, erode my brand equity. So basically, mm-hmm. if I go from promoting 10 weeks a year to 20 weeks a year, is that going to have a negative impact on my brand equity and future sales? Mm-hmm. What do you say to that, Colin, when you get that? I guess when we're talking brand equity, are we talking like baseline health or or how people view the brand? I think both. Yeah. I think it's both. It depends on who's, who's bringing it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, my default would be brand baseline sales. But it could be viewed as or the overall view and, and point of view, how could consumers view your brand? Yeah, because we often measure like, let's say, health of the brand when we talk about that. When we're when we say health of the brand, usually we, we're looking at like baseline sales, right? Yeah. And so I know like this comes up a lot where you say like, hey, we pro- if we go from uh, 10 weeks to 24 weeks a year promoted, doesn't that mean people are going to buy more on deal and buy less on baseline and we'll see our baselines go down? Or if we promote like a bunch of times back to back, we'll see after the promotion, like a trough where people don't buy it for a while as they go through the product. Those are usually the flavors I hear it in. Again, this is something where kind of like before, there's a lot of buying behavior. So we try and exp- we try and make predictions. Well, where this myth comes up is when we try and make predictions about what will happen based on some buying behaviors. So we assume that people are going to pantry load and therefore not buy in the next week's. And things like that, or they're gonna, or they're gonna start training consumers, right? We hear about like training the consumer to only yeah, buy. Yeah, I hear that all the time. Yeah, and so again, if if for buyers who buy like that, this claim certainly makes sense. Does it actually give us any insight into what will happen when we take these actions? And what we find time and time again is that it doesn't actually help us understand what will happen. What we see is that the baseline is unchanged by the amount of promotion we do. So if you're not promoting, you're gonna sell an amount. If you promote one week and then go off promotion, you're going to sell the amount you did in the non-promoted week before. Exactly. 
And it was cool. We actually did uh, one of our interns last year, Nicole, she did her whole intern project around this very question. So she analyzed across all the brands we're working in, promotions, all the promotions by customer over the last few years and see if we could measure an impact. Was there a measurable impact to future baseline sales based on promoting promotional activity? And there wasn't, there was not, there was not a measurable impact. So it's sort of, as Colin said, you get, you run your promotion, you get those sales, promotion goes off, you go right back to where you were the week before, Mm -hmm. which is a really interesting finding. Now we've seen people take that learning and say, okay, well then why do we promote at all? Because shouldn't we just be promoting to drive baseline sales and drive trial? And what do you say to that one, Colin? <laughs> well, this is always interesting because the, the, those two arguments kind of go are, are in the face of one another, where one side says these both both of these things make sense if, if, in the right context. So we'll say, like, if we promote, then more people are likely to buy our product and we drive trial and trial should bring in new users and new users should drive baselines up. So in that sense, promotions should drive up baselines. And the other sense is like, okay, well, if we promote, then we're telling people to, to buy more on deal. And then they're not going to buy it every day because they're going to wait for the promotion. And that line of reasoning says baseline should go down. And so it's kind of like, well, which is it? It can't be both. And it turns out that it's actually that they basically stay flat and it doesn't matter. And so we don't have the answer. I can't tell you if it's because these different buying behaviors are exactly canceling each other out or if some of these hypotheses we have about how people buy product are wrong. We don't know. We don't know all the detailed answers. All we know is that we, if we promote a lot or if we promote a little bit, the baseline is what the baseline is. Exactly. And then on the sort of more marketing side, the brand equity question, I think Lucas, you raised a great brand Cheerios. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of how often they're on promotion. Probably if you go into, especially across all their pack size, there's going to be at least one pack size of Cheerios on promotion in your local grocery store. It's like Oreo. There's always some Oreo. sort of double stuffed, thin right? packs, six packs, 12 packs, cases, flats, always on honey nut. Whatever, whatever the flavor of variety is, there's something that's always there. And, and I would say that Cheerios, Coca-Cola, Oreos have incredibly strong brand equity. Mm-hmm. Probably the one of the biggest <laughs> brand equity, highest brand equity in the store, right? Everyone knows those brands. That's what other yeah. brands strive to achieve. And they're promoting all the time. There was a great uh, quote on Twitter uh, from the former chief product officer, chief marketing officer, Craig Miller at Shopify who said he measured brand as people who didn't click the ads. They saw the promotion and then they remembered it and they might've stuck around and came back months or years later. But that's the same thing in the grocery store. Of It's people who don't redeem the coupon, but, but see it. They're reminded that since you were, a kid, since they were children seeing the brands like Coke or Cheerios or Oreos. And that's tying up, just to tie it up around uh, the analytic side, the analytical side of things. We sometimes get asked the question, well, how do you measure brand equity? And we're not looking at consumer panels and doing that type of marketing data analysis, but what we can look at is sales data in the store. And so we use elasticity. So you might've heard that before in terms of, hey, if I change my price, what's going to be the impact to my demand? So mm-hmm. if they have a, an absolute, or I don't know how to describe this. If the elasticity is between zero and negative one, not, so not elastic. Yeah. yeah, it's not elastic. Then to me, that's a sign of high brand equity. What it's basically saying is you can, consumers are going to spend more for your product. And that's a big sign of brand equity, in my opinion. I think that is a great place to tie it off and wrap it up. Unless, Johnny Colin, do you have anything else to add? No, I think I would say it. that, yeah, I mean, I, I know we're kind of, we might be beating up on the myths a little bit. I think it's always good to, it's always good to think about these things and what the different behaviors are and trying to understand what will happen. Not saying to like 
stop doing that. But just for those of you out there, maybe that have to make some decisions about this, about packaging changes or about how much we promote. I always go back to the data to see what happened. Just leave, leave you guys with that, that like, if you have sales data, you have this history and you have enough data there to understand what will happen. So you can conjecture and build some hypotheses, but then just go test them and take a look. There's no reason to not take that next step and actually do the science and say, okay, well, what did we see in all these experiments we ran? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Exactly. And if you want to know a little bit more about the experiments and the science that Johnny and Colin are running over at Omnium, check out omniumcpg.com and stick around for an ad at the end that'll tell you where they are. <laughs>